Please would you turn with me into the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read the whole of that uh, chapter. Whether you remember it or not, I did come a few weeks ago and I preached from Ezra chapter 7, where we looked at the pattern there of not just studying the Word, but also practicing the Word and teaching or spreading the Word, looking at spiritual life, spiritual growth, a necessity for consistency in your spiritual life. No disconnect between your profession of faith and the reality in your heart. And so we'll touch on some of those subjects again this evening, but this time from the New Testament, hopefully building and enriching that same message. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Hear the Word of God. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may, you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, such are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to your word once again and we plead with you to help us both in the speaking and the hearing and applying. Be glorified through this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our focus will primarily be on verses 22 and 23, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. I've entitled this, this message, How to Live the Fruitful, Spirit-Filled Life. And I ask for your forgiveness for beginning with a personal illustration. I want to tell you that I wrote a book once, 
and you will never see it. It's not something I'm proud of. It's not something that will ever make it to print or ever be submitted for consideration. I had a, a burden and wanted to preach a number of messages, which I then thought could come together in a small book. Uh, and what I found is that I didn't have the ability to do that. This is many years ago now, 20-some years ago, and I, I think it's probably for me uh, because I hadn't learned to write properly or footnote properly or acknowledge properly uh, different people's inputs and quotations. Uh, I also don't think I'd lived long enough. Uh, I didn't have enough wisdom. I'd not studied enough. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I fully arrived now, and I'm also not saying what is contrary to Scripture. We don't despise the days of our youth. There's much that we can learn from our young people too. I'm talking about me. In me, at that time, there was lots of zeal, but not enough wisdom in what I, I wrote. And the title was Christian Mediocrity and How to Achieve It. Trying to be clever, trying to switch things around. I was trying to show what bad habits uh, some people have that, that could potentially stunt growth, stunt holiness and, and usefulness. If you want to be mediocre in the Christian life, not a good thing, then don't pray. Don't study the Word of God. Continue to love and hold on to the things of the world. Don't kill sin. Don't follow Christ's example. Don't forgive others. Don't be consistent in your attendance at church. Restrict fellowship with other believers. Don't serve. Don't live sacrificially. Don't love others. You could go on and on. Looking at it, I think I fully agree with the usual wisdom that it's, it should be very rarely that a young person writes a book. But my burden remains the same, no matter how poorly I executed it. And I believe it to be a, a strong emphasis of Scripture. What was my burden? I'm saying all of this to myself, and I want to strike the right and healthy balance between rebuke and encouragement. I'm not beating you up. I'm wanting to build you up in, in your faith. But this is the intent of my heart this evening. This is the thesis that there are too many Christians lacking zeal, lacking depth that could be more fruitful. Perhaps not taking their walk with Christ as seriously as we should. Perhaps there are too few who rightly fear God, rightly see His glory, rightly are living sacrifices. And we have comfortable churches like this. I've just got back from, back from Kenya where I preached at a conference there. I think Pastor Morungi's even been here. I was at his church. And they have very different circumstances to this. No padded chairs, no air conditioning. And, and I can see the difference in the way that they, they pray often uh, from the way that I pray. The way that I am dependent on God. We are blessed to be in this position. And I wonder if sometimes that, that dampens our enthusiasm, dampens our zeal and our dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, it's, it's a, an individual thing between ourselves and, and God. But I wonder if there's a pattern in prosperous countries like the one I was born in, like the one I now live in. There are dangers of being prosperous that we don't rely on God as much as we, we should. We can learn a lot from other people who live through difficult times, who live in difficult places where they do suffer persecution, where they don't have all the benefits that, that we have. Many believers can teach us so much. I wonder if, therefore, there's some correlation between prosperity and comfort and a lack of zeal, a lack of growth, a lack of dependence on God. Perhaps we could use the simple example of the Lord's Prayer where we ask God to give us this day our daily bread and we have full refrigerators. And yet there are people in the world today who don't know where their children's next meal is coming from. They pray that prayer in a slightly different way, surely. 
I'm also very aware of the challenge to us all here in what I'm saying. I've often heard it said that the piety or the holiness or the godliness of a congregation rarely exceeds that of its pastor. And that's quite a challenge, knowing that James 3.1 tells us that our pastors, that we will be held to a higher standard. Therefore, not many should seek to hold such a position. Maybe we don't like to be challenged on things like this. And maybe we don't like to be compared to people in other places or other generations either. But you see, of course, we're not ultimately comparing ourselves to other Christians like Paul. Follow me in as much as I follow Christ, is what he says. And so our ultimate comparison is with the perfection of Christ. And doing that should be inspiring, not discouraging. We're called to be Christ-like in the way that we live. And we, of course, have the help of the Holy Spirit to do that. We're not left alone. So we're looking at this very familiar passage linked very closely to, to that subject in Galatians chapter 5, where we see the fruit of the Spirit. And we ask that question, are you, are you living a fruitful life? Could there be more? Because that's what Scripture presents to us. That there is more, there is deeper, there is richer than perhaps we have yet experienced. Are we Christ-like? Is there evidence of the Spirit-filled life in you? Well, think about the background. This is one of those passages of Scripture you may have memorized as a child. If you're like me, once you start the list, it doesn't feel right if you stop it halfway through. And my intention is to really, this evening, explain to you what this list is, what it demonstrates, what your expectations and understanding of this passage should be. And of course, Paul here is writing to this church in Galatia, and he, he tells them what they were, what they used to characterize them, and what should characterize them now. He's writing to this dear young church and emphasizes that as believers, we now have freedom from obeying the law in any way that would result in us in earning merit with God. That's, that's not the gospel. In some sense, what Paul is trying to do is stop them when they are tempted to return to that law and think of it in that way. He doesn't want them to go back to the errors of works-based righteousness. But neither does he want them to take this newfound freedom in Christ and lift it up too highly so that they start to think, well, I'm completely forgiven, past, present, future. And therefore, I can sin without any consequences. No, not at all. In fact, we read, didn't we, in verse 16 in chapter 5 about the fact that we, if, it in, if we do indeed have genuine life in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He's showing them how not to fall in either of those ditches. Yes, you're free from the law. It's no longer your master. But you have new desires, new obedience, new spiritual life, new, a new master, a new heart, a new expectation. So what he then does is he draws a distinction between the desires of the flesh and walking by the Spirit in verses 16 through 18. So here's our first of four points. The sins of the flesh. The sins of the flesh. Before we get to the fruit of the Spirit, we find the contrast. Don't miss it. Verses 19 through 21, he lays out the deeds or the, the works of the flesh. These are the behaviors that typify unbelievers. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Evident, that's an important word which we'll come back to. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the things that you should be seeing less and less of if your life is now in Christ. Only with Christ can you be truly victorious over them. Your life should not be characterized by these evil practices. You shouldn't be doing these things. You should be aiming to rid them from your life. They shouldn't be evident when the Christian life is one of putting these things to death, empowered by God's Spirit. It's a long list of potential evidences. But if these are manifest, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 21 puts it. It's serious business. This is evidence that Paul is asking these Galatians and ourselves in our generation to look for. He's saying this should have changed. These should no longer characterize you, believer. But if these keep bubbling to the top in your life, then perhaps you are not dead to sin and alive in Christ. Hugh Binning said this, The love of the world plucks the heart downward, and the lusts of the flesh are so many weights upon the believer that he cannot mount up in a spiritual cloud of divine affection to Jesus Christ. But the pure and spiritual heart is now more refined and delivered from these impediments. And it is like a pure lamp of oil burning upward. When a man's heart is engaged to anything of this world, love cannot be perfect. For love is a man's master, and no man can serve two masters. Truth is for a believer that you have been delivered. You are no longer the slave of Satan. Paul admitted, didn't he, that it's not a comprehensive list. And things like these. He's forewarning these people so they do a health check. Maybe that's what you need today. Not perfection. That's not what we're saying. Though that should be our desire. Yes, Christians continue to struggle with sin, and praise God, we are given remedies in and through Christ. Take these things to Him. Speak to your pastor. If that's your reaction, to deal with it, then that's positive. Rather, if the pattern in your life is consistent, is evident with these sins, and your reaction is defensive or dismissive, or you criticize those who point out these clear truths, then perhaps your spiritual health is worse, worse than you're willing to acknowledge. Dare I say it? Yes, because it's right here, plainly in Scripture. It's undeniable. You may not be a believer. You may not be saved and destined to inherit the kingdom of God. And this isn't the only place that it, the Scriptures make this point. This is a genuine warning with the motivation of love to make you sit up, take notice, and deal with it before it's too late. There are those who think they are saved, but are not. Not just those bad churches out there. In the famous New Testament churches that Paul taught, that Paul is writing to, he cares for them and he loves them so much that he tells them this warning. He gives them these evidences to look for. The problem in every generation. False assurance is deadly. I don't want to see any of us deceived by Satan. Be just religious enough to placate your conscience. That's often where people are. But many people get that far, but they never ultimately know God as their Lord and Savior. They never ultimately truly repent and are saved by grace. It's not a fairy tale. I won't apologize for telling you that because it's repeated numerous times throughout the Scriptures. To thrive in Christ, you need to be in Christ. Just a few weeks ago, I mentioned I was in Kenya. I was asked to be on a, a video forum about the call to the ministry. There was eight of us on, on the video. And I read some of Charles Spurgeon's famous book beforehand, Lectures to My Students. And he lists some of the 
things that you should look for in a pastor when you're considering who should be your pastor. And he did something really basic at the start of the book. He said, it's essential that your pastor is a Christian. Wow, Charles. I mean, that seems rather basic, right? Of course, do you even need to say that? Well, sadly, he does. He's pointing out the very same problem that many are self-deceived, even people in pulpits. And Paul is showing us one side of the evidence to see if we are self-deceived or if we are the genuine article. It may not feel like it, but this is a kindness. This is the gospel's impact we are looking for. Look out for the deeds of the flesh. Be open and honest with God about your worries and struggles and cry out for grace so that you too can live that fruitful, Spirit-filled life. There's other evidence too that we're truly regenerate. This is what Psalm 1 points to. He says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. We see the same imagery again, which yields its fruit in season. We find this in our second point, where we now switch to the positive. Looking at verses 22 to 23. We've seen the sins of the flesh, and now we see the source of the fruit. The source of the fruit. Just really looking at those first few words, but the fruit of the Spirit. The word but sets up that comparison we've just looked at. The antithesis in the previous verses. Well, let's think about what fruit is. Nothing radical here. Fruit comes from something. A bush, a tree, a vine doesn't just appear on the shelf at Aldi. But also, specific fruit comes from specific places. Apples come from apple trees. Oranges come from orange trees, and, and so on. You don't need a degree in horticulture to, to know that. That's the point. It's obvious. It's evident. To use that word again. The fruit that grows comes from the nature of the tree. It comes out. That's the picture. I live 10 miles north of Grand Rapids on 10-mile road, west to east. And if I take that road towards Lake Michigan, straight from my house in Sparta, I pass mile upon mile upon mile of trees. And right now, they're coming to life. But I can't yet see the fruit. I can see posts dug into the ground next to the trees where people have written on the post in, in black paint, F-U-J-I, or G-A-L-A, Fuji, Gala Apples. Now, I could go and knock on the door of one of those Apple companies and say, hey, listen, I don't believe you. I think those are peach trees. You see, all they have to do is tell me to wait. Wait. And in just a few weeks, they'll be able to point to the fruit that comes out of the tree to prove to me that it is indeed a Fuji apple. It will be self-evident that these are apple trees. It will inevitably become apparent. It's an apple tree, and therefore, it will produce apples. It's not a hard illustration. And here in our verse, we're told immediately and plainly whose fruit this is. Not David's fruit or Rick's fruit or Kevin's fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The source of the fruit is the Spirit, verse 22. One of the three equal and divine members of the Trinity. The fruit is in the lives of God's people. And it's God who gives that fruit. It's a, it's a gift. He's the source. I fear that too often in conservative Reformed churches, we're a little bit hesitant to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, but we should never 
have that feeling. We don't want to get the wrong label on us and have those wrong extremes or misunderstanding. No, we need to talk about the Spirit in a, a biblical way. He's central. He's indispensable, both in our salvation and in, in our Christian life. He's the helper that Christ sent after His ascension. He works in and through us. And the source of the fruit is God Himself, the third person of the Trinity. And so the question then is, whether you are born of the Spirit, are you a believer? Are you connected to that source? There is the picture again of, of the vine in Scripture. And that those who are God's people are engrafted into that, that source. In Romans 11, it, it talks of this relating to the people of Israel and, and dead branches being broke off, not, no longer connected to the root system. It's a warning. John 15 is probably a closer picture to Galatians 5, where we, we see that, it's, it, that the gospel writer is talking about other things, but we find the overlap. We turn to John 15. Worth looking there. And what we see here is that Jesus is described as a vine, a true vine, the true vine, singular. If you just glance over, it tells us that this is the only place to go, that it's exclusive. It talks here of his followers, and believers are his, his followers. We are engrafted. And you see here how Jesus is looking for fruit, that it can involve some painful pruning by the Father. But there's the obje objective there of better fruit, high-quality fruit, fruit through abiding in Him. The pruning is, is good for the believer. Now, there's much teaching here that we can't get into and uh, many nuances that would take a whole sermon to go through, but it what is clear is that without being attached to God as the source, there is no fruit. But with that in place, it says there is much fruit. And God is glorified through it. There will inevitably be fruit, but God wants much fruit. There is spiritual life, but we strive for more. This is the key, verse 8. This fruit from the Holy Spirit proves that you are His disciple. It says, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And through that, in verse 11, his joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. You see, without the Holy Spirit, though, you have none of this, a fruitless waste of a life. You're not drawing the nutrients. You're not alive. You're not in Christ. You're either, in some pictures of Scripture that we could turn to, you're either producing no fruit, or in other places of Scripture, bad fruit. And in other places of Scripture, you're only fit for the fire. Whereas those who are in Christ are given the hope of heaven. Perhaps it's this evening where you need to hear that gospel message again of everything being done for you on your behalf. And all you bring is your sin and your need. And you need to come in repentance and faith. Seeking grace and mercy and forgiveness of your sin through, through Christ Jesus. That's what those of us who are believers have already done. Nothing in us that is attractive. Everything that comes from us is because we are engrafted into the vine. Are you in Christ? If not, you need that grace and mercy. You need that forgiveness. Not just producing fruit. That, thank God for that evidence. But you see that more fruitfulness is available. More richness beyond that mediocre Christian life. It can be bountiful, fruitful, spirit-filled, glorifying to God. Now, let's get the perspective right. Don't settle for a single plum. Now, rejoice in that plum. Thank God for that plum. Don't despise it. But the message is that so much more fathomless depths are available in and through 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I, I want to encourage you to pursue by looking at this, this passage in Galatians 5 this evening. Not beat you up in any way, but show you what is available in Christ, what is offered to you. So we've seen the sins of the flesh. We've seen the source of the fruit. And what follows is the illustration of this fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the third point is this, the showing of the fruit. The showing of the fruit. Really, we're only looking at that word is in verse 22. What is it? As a package, what is it? What do we find? What does it entail? What should we expect? How will it show itself? You're truly born of the Spirit, you will produce evidence of that. That's what it's saying. You will produce the fruit of the Spirit, just like that orchard owner on Pen Mile. I could metaphorically go and knock on the door and say, this person here proclaims to be a Christian. They carry a Bible. They say they've been saved. I've read their testimony. I saw their baptism. And just like that farmer, wait, wait, and see, and in just a short time, you'll be able to point to the fruit that comes out to prove to me that this person is indeed a Christian. It will be self-evident. They are a believer, and therefore they will produce the fruit of the Spirit. You see, if the post in the ground says apples, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and no apples ever come, or maybe you see other things being produced, then frankly, what the post says is irrelevant. Similarly, if someone claims to be a Christian, but instead you see the deeds or the desires of the flesh being evident, a continued pattern, manifest, it doesn't matter what they paint on their sign. They're not a believer. Perhaps you see the pattern of immorality or impurity or sensuality or idolatry or all the rest. Study those words. And it's a forewarning. I'll freely admit that for many years as a believer, I, I misunderstood what the fruit of the Spirit was and is. I knew the list. I could recite it but I had a fundamental error over and over when I read it or thought about it. I thought, well, now I'm a Christian. This is a list of things to do. I, I have to try harder. I really need to work at patience. I need to have more joy. I need to really put some effort into being gentle and being more self-controlled. Now, there's truth in that. There are many places in Scripture that command me to love. There, there are imperatives, commands, but not in Galatians chapter 5. That's not what we find. Every single word in that list is a noun in the original Greek. What does that mean? There's no verbs. There's no doing words in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It's not telling you to love. It's not telling you to have joy. It's not telling you to have peace or to be kind or to have self-control. What is it doing then? It is stating something that should be a reality because you are in Christ. You see the difference? Now, we need to, do, need to work out our faith in fear and trembling. There is personal effort involved, and, it, and as it is a great and heinous theological error to think that Christ or His Spirit are somehow going to keep zapping me in my Christian life and work against my will in making me holy or making me more like Him. I can't just give my life over to Christ and, and once I'm a Christian, saved 100% by grace and Christ alone and faith alone, then I'm good. I just sit back now and God does the rest. Well, that's the heresy of antinomianism. What does that word mean? The deadly belief that the law no longer applies to me at all. Now I'm a Christian. Listen to what it says in the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. Christian liberty is freedom from sin and condemnation to serve Christ. 
Some teach that the believer's liberty in Christ is freedom from God's moral law, Ten Commandments, as a direction for how to live, thus granting freedom to indulge fleshly appetites. This antinomian heresy must be resisted vigorously. The liberty to which we have been called is not license to sin, but freedom to obey Christ and to do His will. That's the freedom we have. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to lose you here. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. That as a believer, you are now dead to the law. And it has been conquered through Christ. But even though I am no longer a slave to it, I still need to fight sin and seek to please my Savior and Lord by keeping it. As a believer, I understand that every sin, past, present, and future, has been laid on Christ for me, paid by Him. If I have a right understanding of that, I wouldn't give a second thought to breaking His law. It's off the table. So this is not a passage of Scripture about trying harder or earning anything. So never hear this as a list in Galatians chapter 5 of things to do. Things to do to be accepted by God or to try harder at. No, that's not the teaching or application of this passage. There's no thou shalt or thou shalt not hear. No, this is a list of attributes or traits that are evident in you as a direct result of the Holy Spirit indwelling an individual. A person saved by grace. These will emanate from you. They must to prove the label painted on the post. This is a passage showing manifest evidence of regeneration in the heart of a believer. This is what you should expect to see in varying degrees in true Christians increasing in measure if you are truly born again because God does not leave a person unchanged. You know, when people submit testimonies to the elders at our church, we're not looking just for accurate theological understanding. Mostly we're looking for evidence of the work of Christ in someone's life. How have they been transformed? We want to see evidence of this new heart, that the old desires have been left behind to be replaced by new desires like the farmer, wait and see. The evidence that the outside label matches the inside heart. But you see, pastors will always be fallible fruit inspectors. That doesn't mean you don't try. That's why Paul has these lists here to help. Now, another part of this that I didn't understand before looking in more depth is, is the comparison between those two lists. I wonder if you noticed it. The works of the flesh are many. In the NASB, describes them as deeds, verse 19, plural. But looking at the language relating to the other list in verse 22, many commentators point out the fruit of the Spirit is singular. The deeds are plural. The fruit is singular. Some argue that, therefore, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and all the rest flow from that, that love. I'm not sure I land there. But you see, I, I would suggest that Paul is describing this, this cluster of attributes in the singular. It's a single Holy Spirit fruit package that comes when you are saved, when you become regenerated. It's an indivisible whole. See, this is the picture then, which we find elsewhere in Scripture too, that, that a good tree will produce good fruit. Christ is living within you. The presence of the Holy Spirit is there. Then seeing this fruit will inevitably happen. God expects it. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 16. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are there. Are they? So every, every good tree bears good fruit. 
but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruit. You see the emphasis. Every good tree produces good fruit. It's exclusive. It's indicative of your true heart condition inside. If your behavior and thinking has not changed, it doesn't matter what the label is on your posts. Show me the fruit. That's what it's saying. Show me the fruit. So we've seen the sins of the flesh, the, the source of the fruit, and the showing of the fruit. Briefly, let's get into the, the list itself. Fourthly and finally, the sampling of the fruit. The sampling of the fruit. Verses 22 and 23. Here we have that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what you should be looking for in your life. This is the other side of the evidence so that you know you are truly saved, truly regenerate. That you have that heart of flesh now. What you should, parents, be perhaps looking for in the lives of your children if you're wondering if they are, they are truly believers. Or anyone else to whom you bring the Gospel who then claim to believe. There has been a cleansing, a purification, a fundamental change at conversion. You have been justified. And that inevitably leads on to sanctification, becoming more holy. See, this is the inevitable result of the presence of the Holy Spirit in, in your life and anybody else's life. He works in you. He helps you. He sanctifies you. He grows and matures you as you seek after Him, as you obey Him as Lord and Savior. There is evidence of becoming increasingly Christ-like. You see, these nine traits are the building evidence that you are truly changed, that you are destined for heaven, that you will inherit the kingdom of God. You were His enemy. And now you're His ally. You have a believing heart. Now, some of this list don't need great detail. A lot of commentators take a great deal of time going through them. I'm sure you could do nine sermons. So I'm really only skirting the surface to give you the, the basic meaning, overall meaning of the words. So remember what I'm showing you. The things that should, that must emanate from you. Remember, these are nouns that they are received from God. That comes first. Here's something critical. In other places, there are verbs and commands to build and grow these same traits. All nine of these are not commanded here, but they are elsewhere. I can show you places in Scripture where all nine of these are commanded after you are saved. See, some when they look at this list break it up into three groups. Subject categories. Timothy George, for example, uh, gives the example of the first three in that li list as comprising habits of the Christian mind. The second three, social relations and neighborly concern. And then the third three, the principles that guide Christian conduct. So what's that God-given supernatural evidence? Let's look at love, joy, and peace. Love, 1 John 3.14 makes this abundantly clear. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. See, this is giving of yourself to God and man. What's, what's not here is that emotional type of love. It's a spiritual love. It's the highest form, according to Joel Beakey. It's that agape love. It's intense. And according to MacArthur, it's that love of choice. It's it's not an emotional affection or physical affection or familial bond, but it's a, a respect, a devotion, an affection that leads to willing self-sacrificial service. 
There's, maybe we can read something into the fact that Paul lists this first. This is an example of the Spirit's work, you see. This is just the first one. It's His fruit, remember. And we are elsewhere, even in this passage, if you were to look back at verse 14, we are commanded to love. And it's a reference back to that famous passage, Matthew, Matthew 22, where we have those two great commandments, to love God and to love others. So even though I'm making the point, and Paul is saying here, that this should be plainly obvious and evident in the life of the believer because it's a noun, even in this very same passage, we find a command to love your neighbor. Then we have joy, again, not natural joy from being, let me, let me explain that again. This, this is the work of the Spirit. Is this not the joy from being saved? from experiencing grace and mercy and forgiveness, from being promised a fruitful, Spirit-filled life now when we see the emptiness in people's lives all around us. It's that deep-rooted joy even if bad things happen. I don't know if you, you know the Puritans too well, but they would not wish each other a happy new year, but they would say, have a blessed new year. Regardless of what happens to you this year, which may be death at the hands of the authorities, you are still ultimately blessed because you have that deep-rooted joy. You have that certainty of being in Christ. And all that entails, it doesn't change because He doesn't change. And all His promises are secure. Father of Puritanism, William Perkins says, joy is twofold. Joy of glory after this life, looking ahead, and the joy of grace in this life. And it stands in three things, he says. The first is to rejoice in the true acknowledgement of God, that He is our God and reconciled us in Christ. The second is to rejoice in the work of our regeneration. And the third is to rejoice in the hope of eternal glory. That's true joy. See, that's the noun. But if you were to look in Philippians 4.4, you're commanded to rejoice as well. God's sovereignty and human responsibility kissing once again. Then peace. You have that in your relationship with others. Are you calm? Are you in order? Are you steady? Are you knowing that you are secure in Christ? Therefore, your peace is not wobbled. Perkins again says, it is a care and desire to maintain concord as much as may be if it lie in us. And he goes on to say, neither take offense nor give offense. Seek to edify one another. Either do good or take good. And later he says, set and sow this plant in the furrows of your hearts and that weed of revenge overgrow it not. See again in Romans 12, 18, we are commanded to be peaceful and harmonious. And then we come to patience, kindness, and goodness. Literally, patience is long, long of temper, slow to anger, long-mindedness. Or in other versions, long-suffering. Do you bear with people? Possibly even if they push your buttons or hurt or offend you or disagree with you. And that's where we need to have that broader perspective where we remember how patient God was with you. And it changes your mindset. You have the patience, not just with people, but with circumstances, because your trust is in God. You endure, endure hardships and that kindness. Are you tender-hearted to those around you? We see that in Christ, don't we? Just like we do with all these other attributes. Again, the world around us doesn't have this. If there's any of it, then it's for the wrong reasons, for selfish ones. Then there's goodness, that general sense of, of generosity. Are you someone who helps others, who wants to be there for people, to sincerely care, morally upright? And then we come to faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can others trust you? Do they have confidence in you? Are you reliable, integrity, loyalty? Gentleness, other translations have it as meekness. It's not a weak word, but it includes humility and, and teachability. Careful, not brash. Mild, not provoked, not looking for revenge. Matthew Henry 
says this is sweetness of temper. And then self-control. Interesting that self-control is in this list. Because the deeds of the flesh from earlier are a picture of a complete lack of self-control. Can you hold yourself in? Can you keep your appetites and passions in check? Restrain them with God's help. And the King James word for that is temperance. These are things that are immediately changed within you as, as your nature changes, as your heart changes, that should emanate from you, that should be expected as fruit. But then, as we grow in holiness, we are commanded to also do these things. We're balancing truths here. These should be increasingly evident in the believer. They must also be cultivated. So hand in hand with the fact that we have a transformed heart and that these should, these must emanate from us, we can be proactive also in the development of these virtues. Take the example of 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 8. We actually get a number of our terms here. It says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, notice that, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the, the emphasis here at the start of this. It says applying all diligence. This is a command. The, the English Standard Version says make every effort. The King James tells you to add to your faith and then goes into that list. This is an active command elsewhere, but not in Galatians 5. So this is where you need to look at yourself and ask these honest questions about the way that you live. Are you showing fruit? This fruit? Is it growing? Again, back in Galatians 5 verse 23, Paul leaves the door open for other traits. Even in this positive list, he says, against such things there is no law. Other translations and things like these. This isn't a necessarily complete list either. What it's doing is it's describing Christ-likeness. But there's more to Christ than this too. Campbell says, in an ultimate sense, this fruit is simply the life of Christ lived out in a Christian. It also points to the method whereby Christ is formed in a believer. I emphasize again, we're not looking or perfection here. You are looking for that initial transformation and then progress. Seeing these things in increasing measure. As you ask that question, is the Holy Spirit in charge in my life? Are you concerned about making your calling and election sure? And so we've seen the sins of the flesh, the source of the fruit, the showing of the fruit, the, the sampling of the fruit. Let's conclude our thoughts. Two Wednesdays ago, in the evening, I was rushing to a meeting at church before the prayer meeting an hour earlier and left work and forgot that I needed gas. And the needle on the dashboard was as low as it could go. But more than that, the number of miles left on that digital panel had a big fat zero. He'd been there a while too. If you know Grand Rapids, I drove my car all the way up the East Belt Line. Busy traffic, stressing all the way. Am I going to make it? The engine is running. But am I going to make it to church? And then after the prayer meeting, am I going to make it to the gas station? I did make it, but not with confidence and assurance. I limped over the line. It's a poor illustration, but you see, Christ offers us so many ways to put gas in the tank. Many of which we've mentioned this evening. Many of which were the exact opposite of my chapter headings in that ill-fated book. 
And so I appeal to you for your own spiritual vitality to do the opposite of what I was trying to say. Do pray. Do study God's Word. Don't hold on to the things of the world. Do kill sin. Do follow Christ's example. Do forgive others like Christ forgives us. Do be consistent in your attendance at at church and the means of grace. Seek fellowship. Seek other believers. Live sacrificially. Serve abundantly. Take your Christian life seriously. Value your walk in the Spirit above all else. To grow in your love and devotion to Christ. To live for Him. To please Him. That's a cause worth devoting your life to. And as many in church history have proved, giving your life for. I want this church to thrive in holiness, in, in zeal, in unity, in love for one another. That's the biblical picture that we aspire to. Fruitfulness. Spiritual health. And to do that, we need to develop these things. Christ, devotion to Him is the key. Growing in grace. Killing that sin. Knowing and growing in the truth. Building one another up and encouraging each other. Living by the Spirit. Which will help us in unity by not becoming boastful and provoking and conceited as verse 25 tells us or provoking or challenging or envying one another as it says in verse 26. Surely, each one of you wants to inherit the kingdom of God. Surely. If I was to ask you that question, you see, that's what's at stake here. Surely, then, each one of us wants to serve our risen Savior, wants to know Him more deeply, wants to love Him more, because He's given everything for you, believer. We must give all for Him. There's another picture of bearing much fruit in John 12, verse 24. And this is where Jesus shows that His sacrifice leads to that fruit. But then He applies it to the believer. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it bears much fruit. And then He applies it. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Certainty. My friend, you need to live that life of self-sacrifice. Be content with the role that God has given to you. And prayerfully test and seek where you can grow and use your gifts in greater extent. It's not a life of inconvenience, you see. It's a life saturated by loving and serving Him where your own desires take a lower level of importance. That's true fruitfulness rather than selfishness where we yield everything to God. Yes, the fruit comes from the Spirit. But we must strive with all that we have to live in a manner that is pleasing to Christ. It tells us in verse 19 and 20 that we have been crucified with Him. And at the very end of this chapter in verse 24, it tells us that we believers have been crucified. We have crucified the flesh and now we should be living according to the Spirit. All those evil worldly passions and desires crucified too. This is where full joy is found in this life. In Christ. True liberty. Where's that found? Following Him. Don't let the devil fool you into thinking anything different that you're that you're anything, getting rid of your sin is, is negative. No, it's entirely positive. You've found freedom from his slavery. Now live like it. In true freedom with Christ. This is the person that will walk by the Spirit. This is the person that will inherit the kingdom of God. Or oh, don't live a life of mediocrity. 
when there is so much available in Christ. The fruitful, Spirit-filled life is available and achievable. Why? Because you are engrafted into Christ. It all comes from Him. Pursue Him with everything you have got. What a blessing. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You will take this Word and apply it to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to live with that right perspective each and every day, seeking to serve You and love You. Lord, we pray that this fruit will emanate from us and that we will cultivate it. Lord, help us in this, we pray. We pray for any who do not have this evidence of a spiritual heartbeat, that even this night, that You would save them, that You would change their heart, change their nature, and that fruit will then inevitably come, and that they will inherit the kingdom of God by grace that none of us deserve. Be glorified in that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.